0: that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Say, we like to get started. I talk to you, and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Bradley. You better start talking. Let's stop the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Midnight, conversing until the night. All we need is in. Now we've got a self-communication. Bradley's always on the air. Bradley's always everywhere. And I would rather be here, BZ, 10.30, yeah. Bradley, Bradley. Bradley J. J. Talking WBZ. WBZ, that's
1: correct. One oh eight. And we are going to continue with Bob Allison, professor at Suffolk University, and he is a trustee for the USS Constitution Museum. Can you talk a little bit about the museum? I haven't talked about the museum yet. Before we get back underway, let's just pretend we're in port now and we're not underway yet. Talk about the museum.
2: So the museum was launched in 1976, at the time of the bicentennial, to tell the story of the Constitution. At that time, the ship had aboard it most of the artifacts to tell the story and they realized that this both wasn't a good way to tell the story and it also wasn't a safe way to store artifacts, so they created a museum. Samuel Elliott Morrison, the noted uh, naval historian, uh, dedicated the museum in April of 1976, and it is a private nonprofit but does work in partnership with the United States Navy that owns the ship and the National Park Service that owns the Navy Yard. And so it does tell the story of the ship. They also have a great library, the Samuel Elliott Morrison Library, where they've collected journals and other of the documents that tell the story. But they, and they have a, the second floor of the museum. you can experience life at sea or hammocks. You can find out what it's like to scrub the deck and raise a sail. And how do you, you
1: find out how, what it's like to raise a sail? Is there a
2: There's a mast. You, a, a mast, you can stand on a rope. Uh, and over the mast and try to full furl the sail which isn't easy it's not an easy thing to do and you can imagine if you were 100 feet in the air trying to do this and here you're you know you wouldn't won't get badly hurt if you fall off here also they have hammocks other things so they really are trying to make it experiential so you can experience this how to fire a cannon and do the other things that uh, go into
1: I need to I need to check all this out and yeah it, it, there's a fee to get in, but you can join. Well, I'm you guessing. can. Do,
2: actually, it's open. It's, you, they want a donation when you go in. They don't say, you know, pay us, but, you know, they do want you to donate. Back in 1998, about the time the ship uh, sailed for the first time since the 1880s, the History Channel gave them a grant so that they wouldn't have to charge admission. And so, in the month of July of 1998, they didn't have to charge admission and they realized that suddenly they're getting a lot more visitors who are donating so they haven't formally charged admission since when you go in they do say oh we expect a donation and most people give something but they're not going to turn you away if, so
1: they probably know. made at least, well almost as much money
2: yeah they did they way. discovered a lot more a lot more people come in and then people will feel if you know okay, I, I don't want to sound crass, but if I've already paid to go into a place and then they ask for a donation, I think, well, didn't I just give yeah. you a donation? And people also will spend more in the gift shop. Yeah. So, and it gets more people. And when I first became involved with the museum, they said, how come 700,000 people a year go visit the ship and 70,000 come to see the museum? Because when you have to go to the museum, you had to pay. And once they stopped charging admission became 700,000 would visit the ship and 400,000 would come to good. the museum.
1: And a lot of those people would buy stuff,
2: they buy stuff, and also they have, they have great programs for school groups and tour groups. So um, it's really a great place.
1: What kind of stuff do they have in the gift shop? I bet that's pretty cool.
2: So. a lot of really cool stuff, including a lot of really good books by some of your favorite authors, as well as ship models. Neckties, quadrants, uh, pens, pens made out of wood from the USS Constitution. Really? When they refit the ship, when they do a restoration, they, they a take lot. the old wood and okay. they, you know make stuff out of it.
1: You need to make another chair out of
2: it. You could make another chair. yeah, lots of lots of chairs. In fact, um, there are pieces of wood all over the country of from the Constitution. I've been told they could probably build several more constitutions out of the wood that's been taken off of her. About uh, 7% of the ship is original wood, and that is the keel and the ribs, the live oak ribs, which are what make it so impervious to rot and to British cannonballs.
1: Yeah, do they use wooden pegs instead of nails?
2: In some cases, in some cases they use nails. It depends on what the purpose is. Okay. The in... person you really want to get on is Margarita D.C., who is a naval historian, and she works for the Naval Historical Detachment. And she knows more about the ship, I think, than everyone combined who has ever served okay. on the ship.
1: The reason I bring that up is because Mayflower two raised money
2: mm-hmm.
1: by having people, uh, They would these wooden pegs or nails are about 18 inches long, and yeah. people would, could pay money and then sign one, yes. and then the peg with their name on it would be driven into oh, wow. the ship. Okay. So they would know that their name was mm-hmm. part of that
2: ship. Yeah. One thing Constitution did last year with their refitting, they replaced the copper that lines the hull. And Paul Revere had uh, built a rolling mill in Canton so that he could roll the copper that lines the hull of Constitution. Last year when they were putting on the copper, you could sign the sheets of copper. And um, just as a, an example of the, what the copper does, the copper prevents sea life from clinging to the hull and sea wow. worms from boring through the hull. And they said that in the 1990 restoration, they'd put 13 tons of copper on the hull of the ship. And then they took off about 5 million tons, uh, 30 or 5,000, whatever, the the 13 to 5. That is, the copper corrodes. and But when it's corroding, it's what it's supposed to be doing. It's preventing the sea life from clinging to it. Whew.
1: Okay. And I wanted to talk about the dry dock. Yes. And when you go to the museum, you see this wicked cool thing that's, I don't know, is it made of wood? It's huge, and you, it's clear it's a dry dock. It's
2: massive. It's made of granite. Granite. Granite And from I Quincy. didn't realize
1: this was specifically made
2: for the yes. Constitution. Yeah, this is technically dry dock number two. It opened about a week after dry dock number one in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And if you look at the head of the dry dock, you'll see the names of the president who was in office when it was commissioned, and or when it was first begun. That's John Quincy Adams, and then the president who was president when it was finished andrew jackson one of the few places in the country you'll see their names joined as
1: so that's how old that dry dock is yeah
2: 1826 27 is when it opened and it opened to after oliver wendell holmes poem the navy said okay we have to fix it so let's put in a dry dock here and in fact constitution is now the last ship to have been in it It came out just last year
1: so it's basically and this is oversimplistic. it's a stone-lined ditch with the dam at one end
2: yeah that's not over simplistic that's exactly what it and is and you know, yeah. open the dam
1: the water comes in yes yeah and the ship comes in close yes. the door pump it out
2: pump it out and the, the museum actually was built as the pump house to oh. the pumps for the and i
1: as i was looking at it i thought boy they must have to really be careful as they're pumping it out i bet they're carefully jockeying this, this ship so it oh, yeah. it sets exactly correctly they, they do
2: yeah it really is it has to be very carefully done and and then, of course, the keel has started to hog. That means it sags on either end. And so one purpose of going into dry dock is to correct that. So you have to line up the keel along the um, blocks you've put to hold it. It's like the spine of the ship.
1: Right, but the, the, the shape of the spine is different than it used to be.
2: It is, yeah, yeah. It does. When you built it because yeah, it sags. Yeah. It does sag on either end, yeah. Back to the
1: the museum, which was the pump house for that? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the building besides that, that the, the floor, the walls, how old it might be, the style, anything you might know about the building?
2: Well, it's a granite building, and it was built probably in the 1820s, and then there's another building behind it that is also part of the museum, built a little bit later. Most of the buildings in the Navy Yard, in this part of the Navy Yard, date to the early 19th century, and the, it was built as a very utilitarian building. And so you go up into the library, you see these big beams overhead from when it was a pump house. And then, you know, you can hear everybody walking upstairs because the floors were built to, you know, be, for, it's a work, was a, built as a workspace. And,
1: and you can tell that forests are a lot different than they yeah. were because I'm guessing they
2: had wider planks. Yeah. Two
1: foot boards at yeah, the time yeah. in the 1820s, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Just, trees don't, there aren't that many old trees anymore.
2: Not anymore, no, no. So, yeah. And the wood would have come from, well, most of the wood in the Navy Yard would have come from New England, but the ship's wood came from all over the country. The live oak came from Georgia, uh, later Florida, and the pine, a lot of the pine came from Indiana. That is, they were building these ships and bringing the wood from different parts of the country to build them, these six frigates built in the 1790s.
1: In Durham, New Hampshire, there's a road called Mast Road, and I was always told, well, that's because they used to, Get ships' masts oh, yeah. down that road. Oh yeah, is there a particular areas or particular type of tree you used for for those? And did those trees grow in certain states?
2: I believe those would be pine. Um, but yeah, a pine would be, and a lot of the deck is also white pine because you use lighter wood for different parts. If the entire ship was made of live oak, it would sink. All right. Yeah. By the
1: way, I guess I have to confess: Where is Borneo?
2: Borneo is actually, I believe, the largest island in the world and one okay. of the least known. And it is in um, Indonesia and Malaysia and also the nation of Brunei. So it is between Singapore and New Guinea and Australia. Okay. And it's a huge island. And the Constitution's real, only real stated purpose was to see if there was coal in Borneo. So they're in Singapore saying... And they say, yeah, our next stop is going to be Borneo to see if there's any coal. There happened to be a guy in Borneo named James Brooke, who is English, and he had been cozying up to the Sultan of Brunei, and he was establishing himself as the Raja of Sarawak. Sarawak is on the northwest coast of Borneo, a large principality there, and the Sultan of Brunei thought, okay, this guy will be an ally, he'll keep the troublesome people in Sarawak under control, and... You know, Where was this
1: guy, Brooke from? He was from England. So he so could from, just go somewhere and, and yeah, work yeah, to become yeah, a Raja? Yeah,
2: yeah, he had been involved with the East India Company, which had taken over much of India, and he saw Borneo as a logical place to extend. You know, like Singapore was started by the East India Company. So Raja Brooke is setting himself up in Sarawak, and then he happens to be in Singapore. And, he's got, and he, for years, had been writing to the British government saying, send a ship here, show the flag, send a warship. And then suddenly he sees an American warship comes to Singapore, and they say, hey, we're going to Borneo. And he writes back to England saying, the Americans are doing what I've been telling you to do for years, send a warship. See the Amer- And he finds out Constitution's on its way to Borneo, so he gets to Borneo first.
1: How do you find out something like that?
2: Well, the sailors are saying, they, he talks to Percival, and Percival says, yeah, we're on our way to Borneo. Oh, okay. we one of the lieutenants. It's not like it's a top secret. They okay. don't see any reason to keep it quiet, you know. Yeah, we're going to go to Borneo, see if we can have any, find any coal. And so Brooke gets to Borneo, and he makes an agreement with the sultan that the sultan will only sell uh, coal to Raja Brooke
1: On behalf, really, of the British.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. And so uh, the constitution gets to Borneo, and they do meet with the sultan, and the sultan says, I've just agreed only to sell, I'd love to help you guys, but I've only just agreed only to sell it to Raja Brooke." And at first, they think this guy is lying to them. He's just, uh, but then they find out that indeed Raja Brooke has beaten them to it. Another fun story about Borneo, I and mean, they do find this Chinese city. They don't find it, so there's a large Chinese city there, a Chinese floating city. As the Chinese are mining in Borneo, they've also found not coal, but other things to mine. And uh, Borneo, there are. Um, headhunters in Borneo, a lot of folks who are, you know, they're small This is the groups. real deal. It is the real deal. There's a woman named Ida Pfeiffer, a German woman. Her husband dies, and she decides what she wants to do is walk around the world. And so she starts writing these travel books, and she goes to Borneo, and she walks across Borneo, and she, you know, there people think, okay, this middle-aged German lady doesn't seem to be much of a problem, and one night... This um, tribe says to her, okay, we'll let you stay with us. So they give her the place of honor in their um, cabin, and it's actually next to where the heads are drying. Oh. And uh, I don't know if you ever slept next to shrunken heads, but no. No, I haven't.
1: Uh, It's interesting the place of honor would be right by the heads. Yeah,
2: yeah, it would be, yeah.
1: So that's a pretty significant walk across the largest island, and and this is filled with
2: headhunters. Well, probably
1: not supposed to say savages, but... Headhunters.
2: Yeah. And, and then uh, she actually dies in Madagascar doing the same thing. And she doesn't have a problem in Borneo. But uh, Madagascar proves. But she writes these wonderful travel books about walking across these places because it's what she had wanted to so do. So these are available? They are available, yeah. Just like Henry A. Wise's book. Pfeiffer? Can, yeah, P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R.
1: Do you happen to know if it's written in some old, difficult
0: English or is it
2: Well, it originally you, was written you, in German but translated into English and um I, I can read much of this. I, it's easier to read than Henry James, put it that way. Okay.
1: So uh, anything else in Borneo before we move on?
2: Uh, no, I think we can move on from Borneo. The next stop is Vietnam. Okay. Or what then was called Cochin, China. Okay. And they stop at a place they called Turan, we would call Da Nang. And it is, at that point, the largest harbor in Vietnam. And the government of Vietnam is in the city of Hue, and that's where the emperor is, but no one sees the emperor. So they get into this large harbor of terrain, and one thing that had happened en route is, uh, well, they had begun to have deaths aboard, and sailors who die at sea will be buried at sea.
1: So it's been healthy up to this point.
2: Up to, up to the time they get into Which is the Indian Ocean. It's remarkably Unusual. Health, it is unusual. Remarkable health until they get into the tropics. And Percival had had the hull of the ship painted white, so it would reflect the heat more than the black hull would. But it's the heat, also it's the bad water they've taken on in Madagascar, Zanzibar, that suddenly men are being stricken with dysentery and they They start dying. And uh, Percival actually has his outer cabin turned into the sick bay because there are so many men who are sick. And they... Um, are approaching Vietnam and Seaman Cook dies and they decide instead of burying him at sea, maybe we can bury him ashore. So the first thing they do when they get into Tehran is they send a boat ashore to, and there's a Buddhist monastery, and they ask these Buddhist monks if they can bury their late uh, comrade here and they say yes. And so they bury Seaman Cook and then they pay them like a few bucks to watch the grave and those monks watched that grave until the 1990s when the sea level rose and it washed to sea and the little shrine they had built for seaman cook became a um, a shrine that vietnamese fishermen would stop at to pray before they went out to sea the american grave and the other americans were buried here in um danang in the 1845 when the ship was there now They're watering the ship, they're getting fresh provisions, and a delegation from the town comes aboard, a delegation of the mandarins. These are the rulers in Vietnam. And the delegation is leaving, and the last guy in line drops a piece of paper on the deck, so none of the other Vietnamese can see it. They pick up this piece of paper, and it's a letter from a French missionary who is being held prisoner by the Vietnamese. He has heard there's a Vietnamese there's a sh- a foreign ship here he thinks it's a French ship so he wants to tell them I'm being held captive and I'm going to be executed because at this point the Vietnamese government is clamping down on Catholics and so this uh, um, Bishop Lefebvre who is the French missionary had been engaged in this kind of cat and mouse game with the Vietnamese government periodically they would clamp down on him and then uh, they would let him back, and there were Vietnamese who had converted to Catholicism, and this is a moment when they're clamping down on Catholics. So Bishop Lefebvre sends this message, help me, I'm about to be executed. Mad Jack sees this message. He had visited the town the day before and consulted with the Vietnamese officials, who were always very reluctant to give a direct answer to anything, But suddenly Mad Jack sees this French missionary is being held prisoner. He gathers some Marines, they go into town, and uh, with this Marine guard, he marches up to the um, palace of the governor. He thinks it's the governor. No one is really going to say what their role is, and he demands that this guy be released. And the governor says, well, of course, I will have to send a message to the emperor in way. So... The message in Mad Jack says, I'm going to start shelling the town if you don't do something. And he does capture a couple of Vietnamese gunboats that are in the harbor, ties them up behind Constitution while he waits for a message to come back from way. And he is prepared to fight the Vietnamese. (laughs) And that night, um, some of the Vietnamese, they realize there's some scuffling going on on these vessels that they've captured, you know, and they have the crew tied up. And they go to these vessels and find that someone has come aboard and the officers aboard these ships have had plaster put over their eyes and they're wearing hats that basically say, I'm an idiot for getting taken captive. Oh, my God. And they're tied up. and So they went right
1: on their own ship to they, shame they, yeah, them.
2: Yeah, they, they shame these guys. And the Americans try to take the things off these guys. They say, don't do that because they'll kill us if they see us, see you, if you uh, take this stuff off. And then uh, Mad Jack does. Uh, The Vietnamese send more warships, and the captain, Mad Jack, fights with them. And a message comes back from Wei saying, we know nothing about this. And then finally they say to Mad Jack, who's prepared to shell the town, say, okay, shell the town. Good luck getting more fresh water or fresh food for the rest of your voyage. So Mad Jack realizes that he's stuck.
1: So he just says, let's get out. let's he said, get, let's out, of get out of here. He, he
2: does alert the French. when he, finds, meet, he does meet with a French ship, and he says, hey, there's this um, French missionary being held captive. I tried to do what I could. And the French use this as a pretext then to colonize Vietnam, the fact that they've held— That's, a, that's huge. That is huge,
1: yeah. And they, yeah. they were involved all the way to Dan Bien Phu.
2: That's right, until we came back, yes. Word of a Vietnamese ship goes to Singapore a year or so, a few months after Percival had been to Vietnam. And Ballestier, Joseph Ballestier, the American consul there, is looking for a way to get out of Singapore. And he thinks, boy, Singapore really hadn't worked out for him. Maybe if I set up in Vietnam, that would be more lucrative. And he finds out from this Vietnamese captain what had happened with Percival. And he thinks, well, this would be really an opportunity. So he writes to President Zachary Taylor saying, Percival really botched things in Vietnam. You need to send someone who can smooth things over with them. And I have someone in mind. So Percival is, I'm sorry, Belestier has sent a letter from um, President Taylor apologizing to the government of Vietnam for this intemperate action of the American commander. And please show Mr. Belestier all, we, we, the United States wants to make up to the Vietnamese. The, Ameri- the Percival and his crew had said, we'll never understand these people in Vietnam. And Ballestier thinks, I will go to Vietnam with this letter of apology. They'll be so happy to see me. So he goes to Tehran, and again, he can't go to Wei. He thinks, I can just go to Wei with this letter, but they say, no, no one goes to Wei. And they'll take this letter to the imperial city. And so they go, and he waits and waits and waits, and finally a message comes back saying, we consulted our archives, and we have no record of this series of events you are apologizing for. So we don't know how we can accept an apology for something that never happened. And please leave. Uh, so
1: they really knew about it, but they just said they had no record? Yeah, yeah,
2: and it would be embarrassing to them to say, yeah, we had this fight with this American ship and uh, all these things happened, so they don't want to deal with this guy, Belestier. They don't want an American consul showing up in Turin,
1: we don't need you.
2: You don't need you. Yes. Yeah, so and so he is poor. Blestier is sent to He wind, winds up dying in Pennsylvania. Um, where did he
1: go after Vietnam?
2: Well, he went goes he back to the United and, States. And but, and you know, he was originally French, and he had come to Boston sometime in the 1790s. That's where he met Rachel Revere. Of course, her grandfather was also French, and so they marry. They go to Singapore, and her son, whose name is Joseph Warren Revere Blestier, that he winds up dying in Singapore Rachel Revere winds up dying in Singapore Joseph, her husband has both of their bodies shipped back so they're both buried in the granary burying ground really yeah. oh yeah
1: yeah oh I have to see that uh...
2: yeah and the Re- and the Revere family grave is where they are so buried. what stones would I look for look for Paul Revere's grave and, which and is wh- in the granary. Wh- what are the
1: names around it that we're talking about now Rema- these
2: are um, Rachel, Rachel Revere ballestier and Joseph Warren Re- you know Revere's son was named Joseph Warren Revere after Joseph Warren. And then he started the whole, he really ran the bell-making business. And then his son was in the Navy. And so also named, I believe, Joseph Warren Revere. And then her son is named Joseph Warren Revere Ballestier. Named both for, well, actually named for Joseph Warren, the um, hero of Bunker Hill.
1: Geez, you know, they. They had such exciting lives. I, I feel they like did. I yeah. haven't.
2: Well, none of us do. That's no, no. I mean, one reason we study history is because we have We're such studying the lives. people who had the exciting lives. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> not, the, not the people who just sat and lived their little life I out mean, in Vietnam or yeah, whatever. And who,
2: who's going who's gonna to sit up all night listening to someone tell our stories? So right. That's a-
1: now, everybody wants to be connected with the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. Do people also want to be connected with the Constitution? Is there this genealogical. Uh, desire to say, I, I have ancestors that we're, were on the Constitution?
2: Well, some do. I, I've, I've had a surprising number of people who've told me about relatives who, they always seem to have been captain, I think. Um, but All captains. All captains, yeah. Um, being on the ship would have been a kind of a hard life, you know, as he signed on for the voyage. And there are about six guys on the vessel named John Smith. and. I don't know if any of them actually was named John Smith. I've had a student, Dan Hart, who's been doing research into members of the crew, as he can find them. And, you know, you really can't trace someone named John Smith, but you can trace someone named John Chippy, C-H-I-P-P-E-Y. And John Chippy was aboard the vessel, and he was often in trouble. He's one of the most frequently punished for things ranging from insolence to stabbing someone else and he stays on you wonder why someone stays on well why they keep him on well he's a good sailor he probably is a tough guy he's a tough guy he's a good (laughs) sailor he gets promoted a lot too i mean some of these guys are good sailors and they realize that you know getting in trouble is some part of the job and john chippy it turns out his father is a minister in Delaware, and in fact, he is probably the leading African-American minister in Delaware, and then his brother becomes the minister in Delaware, so you have this family where one brother is the minister and the other one goes to sea. And then John Shippey does settle down when he gets off of the ship and uh, leads a productive life. There's another fellow named Lot Green. By the way, in the ship's um, payroll, it does not distinguish between people by race. We know there are about a dozen African Americans aboard the vessel, but you have to find this by reading the log very carefully or other clues because the payroll I mean, they're paid the same as whites doing the same job and they're promoted or demoted or punished the way others are. So the Navy, unlike the Army, is not segregated. You know, these guys are not there's going no to be there's no room to be segregated. The, that's right. You're, you're really in close quarters with all these other guys. And you can see why some people, you know, they don't like each other. You're 500 guys, you're going to clash with some. And there are are a number of Germans who are part of the band. And one of these Germans in the band, a guy named Fisher, actually keeps a log. He he keeps a journal in German with his great granddaughter translated into English. And she also had served in the Navy. So his journal is available in English. His father dies during the cruise. And everyone's really touched with how well the son takes care of his father as he's dying. And there's a Swedish fellow who dies in cruise. And he had been, you know, a guy in his 50s who's still at sea. And it's very difficult to rise through the ranks from enlisted man to officer and very few, actually none do. And so you have, uh, we could go on talking about the Navy generally, the tough life it is. But you mentioned constitutions last near battle, and this but is before you get desert.
1: go there. One more thing about the navy. Am I correct that you didn't join the navy for two years or four years? Yeah. Like you did it per voyage.
2: You signed up for the voyage. Yeah,
1: you were in. The, you worked for the government for one voyage.
2: One voyage. You sign up for that voyage. And then what off sometimes happens is, you you want to get off at a certain place. If you're not an American citizen, yeah, you could get off in Singapore and hope to get onto a different vessel. But if you are an American citizen, you're on for the voyage. And they get into real trouble when they get to Mexico because they're almost home. And now a war may be beginning with Mexico. And we want the ship to stay in Mazatlan, this port on the west coast of Mexico. And so they're waiting there. They wait there for months and discipline just deteriorates. This is when they have the most floggings, the most incidents, the most attempts at desertion when they're in Mazatlan because they are so close, And but there's nothing to do. And suddenly they're not under Mad Jack Percival, they're under the command of Commodore John Sloat, who's kind of a um, stickler for things. And Percival doesn't really get along with him and nor do the men aboard the ship, so um, they do manage to get out of Mazatlan just as the Mexican-American War is beginning.
1: I couldn't help, back to Vietnam, actually where we were, couldn't help notice that we never understood Vietnam. No. Captain Jack didn't. Ballistiae no, didn't. No. And we continued to not understand them. Yeah. Up yeah. until the 1970s.
2: Yes. Okay,
1: we leave Vietnam. Where do we go after Vietnam?
2: To China. Oh, we,
1: did we talk about China much yet? No, we didn't. No, oh, no. let's, you know, okay. actually-, actually, let China next on WBZ.
0: Jay Talking, Bradley Jay. Hey, Bradley want to to the light of day. WBZ News Radio 1030. and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: It's a radio wave, sir.
0: I've had some long nights in stir. Alone in the
1: dark with nothing but your thoughts. Time can draw out like a blade.
0: Like a very bright man It's very educational that's why i'm here bradley J. J.
1: talking wbz one more segment with bob allison as we finish up our trip around the world on the uss constitution (laughs) we departed from vietnam but before we do depart as far as this talk goes is that where there was a uh of seaman Cook who yes, died, seaman and Cook. they asked permission to bury him, yes. and they gave him a special spot. Yes, and then later on, well, I, I a don't marine, wanna, a marine, you, you,
2: others, oh yeah. yeah, marines
1: from the 1970s or 60s war in Vietnam were also buried there.
2: Yeah, yeah, but also marines from the ship were buried there. Okay, and and then in the uh, during the Viet- uh, post Vietnam War, it was part of a Vietnamese military installation where these Americans had been buried. Now I think they actually have built a resort there. Um, but yeah, think about the history there. Those monks were watching that grave. Oh yeah, that was part us.
1: of the deal. Yeah. They gave them some money. Will they, you watch and you they protect this grave? T- they tended it. And they tended it to yeah. modern day.
2: Instead of modern day, through all of the, the war between the United States and Vietnam. And, and then afterward, when, after the communist government takes over in Vietnam, and in fact, uh, Congressman Lynch says he's been to Vietnam a number of times to bring back the remains of Americans there. And he said that the Vietnamese have told him, the Vietnamese generals have told him, we have great respect for the Americans, not because of your military power, but because you remember the dead you left behind and you're trying to bring them back. That's something that means a lot, means a lot to all of us. So anyway, the ship leaves Vietnam goes to Guangzhou or Canton, which then there are a lot of Americans there. And this is in the wake of the Opium war. One thing they notice everywhere in the in Singapore is the prevalence of opium, which the British are selling in this area, mainly to Chinese. And the British have just fought a war with China because Britain wants to sell opium. The Americans had gotten out of the opium trade earlier, but they had, uh, you know, war over opium in the early 1840s. And the British have just begun to build Canton, uh, Hong Kong, you know, but um, the Macau is still pretty much a busy place, Portuguese colony. And one thing they notice along the Pearl River, this river that uh, Canton is on and the headwaters of it, these islands, there are entire thousands and thousands of people who live on boats on the water. They never step foot on shore. And they have their children are wearing like floats in case they fall into the water. And initially, you know, uh, boatloads of people come wanting to sell stuff to Constitution. And they get to know some of these vendors who there's a cockroach lady who comes aboard to catch cockroaches aboard the ship and has a testimonial from another vessel that she's cleaned of cockroaches. And they have this, um, it's a different, much different world. And they're really struck with this. And just a few years earlier, uh, uh, speaking of American to go here, Frederick Law Olmsted had been in Canton, and he had walked around and seen this juxtaposition of this very densely populated city, but then these natural areas. It's something that struck Olmsted, who later is going to design the Emerald Necklace in Boston and other parks around the country. And so they are in this large estuary, Canton, Macau, Hong Kong, and getting to know this area. They're they're there for the summer, pretty much, of 1845 in Canton. They celebrate July 4th there, surrounded by other ships. And also there's a burying ground for foreigners, which looks very much the same today as it did then. That is this thriving American trade in Canton, uh, getting stuff from China, and... There's a famous English artist who is in Canton He had gone to India first he's a member of the Royal Academy and he goes to make his fortune easier to do when there are fewer English artists around in India and now he's made his way to Canton and he's actually trained a Chinese artist named Tinghua and Tinghua opens his own studio which turns into a factory for turning out paintings because he realizes what the foreigners want what kind of paintings they want so he has guys. So is it kind of like
1: Warhol's helpers? Yeah, exactly. He, has this, he yeah. trains this guy how to paint like he does, yeah. kind of paints them, and he signs them?
2: No, no. The, the British guy is out of it oh, by this right. time. Okay. And he's really miffed because the Chinese guy is doing it just as well. All right. And you know why are you going to pay $400 for a painting by the English guy when you can do $20 by the Chinese right. artist? Right. And so it's a thriving business that the Chinese are engaged in, and the Chinese... Chinese also are under realizing ways of selling things to the West, that suddenly all these ships come and they want stuff, so we can provide stuff, the porcelain and other things. And so Constitution is there for the summer of 1845, really between Macau and Canton. In Macau, they go to the shrine for Camoes, the Portuguese poet who had written about Portugal's exploration, the Lusiads, one of the great um, epic poems in the Western tradition and they see themselves as being part of this. So um, again, Canton, there's a lot of Americans there. Robert Bennett Forbes has actually introduced the first steam vessel into Canton and is used for plying the waterways from between Macau and Canton or what's now Guangzhou. And the crew must
1: love being in port like that. They can get all kinds of good, actually, they good can.
2: food. Yeah, they can. They can buy food from the locals who bring it to the ship. Uh, they're really not allowed to go out and walk around. Oh, in fact, they, I didn't know. Because... Some members of the crew aren't allowed because the captain doesn't want them to desert. So um, the crew are kept port. But, yeah, it's easier to get fresh food. When they're in port, they'll get fresh vegetables, fresh meat. In fact, there's a Chinese purveyor who gets the contract to provide everything for the Chinese. This is quite a lucrative thing. These um, guys, the ship chandlers in these different places who get the business. To, in, in Singapore, their chandler is a guy named Wampoa. That's, he's Chinese, but he goes by Wampoa. That's where he's from in China. That's a place just uh, south and east of um, Canton. And so that's where he is from, and it's easier for people to remember that than to remember his Chinese name, which the, is Huwak Ke
1: The British used to press gang people, as I understand it, knock them on the head, drag them on the ship, and— Make them work for them. Did we ever do that?
2: Uh, No, no, uh, we we don't do that. Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, Okay. um, I'm pretty sure we don't. Um, I'll stand corrected if someone remembers being impressed. Um, Or Shanghai, I suppose. Shanghai, exactly. If you're in
1: Shanghai, yeah. Is it? We need to leave enough time to talk about the final, almost battle.
2: Final almost battle. So Constitution leaves. Guangzhou. And as I said, when they left America, there were rumors that we may be going to war with England. And there had been British ships in Guangzhou they had seen, and they're off the coast of China, and suddenly there is a British squadron around them. And two steamships and a couple of sailing vessels, bigger than Constitution, and one of the steam vessels starts heading toward Constitution. And Mad Jack sees a foreign vessel is approaching us, so he has the drums beat the men to quarters. Everyone is at their battle stations and they are prepared to go down fighting. They're outmatched by this British fleet, but if they are going to have a fight, Mad Jack is going to fight. And the steam vessel stops off Constitution and a smaller vessel rows toward the ship and an officer, an English officer, comes aboard Constitution and he is shocked to get aboard and see all the men standing by the guns prepared to fire. And they're holding the lit matches in their hands, preparing to fire the cannon uh, if the British attack. And he's stunned. He's come aboard because they realize they're short of bread, and they want to know if Constitution can loan them several hundred barrels of bread. It's, and that's all they want. Mad Jack was prepared. This would have been Constitution's last battle again, against the British. She would have gone down in the South China Sea, taking on a British squadron because the United States and England were again at war. It's the last time Constitution has her men prepared to fire at an English enemy.
1: Good for Captain Jack. He, he feel, I feel like he was excellent uh,
2: He was a uh, great, captain. great, great captain. This is one reason the men stay aboard, is because they know he is a good captain. He's cool. He's, yeah, he's not going to get them killed through uh, bad sailing.
1: Folks, uh After hearing this, you probably invigorated to go actually to the museum and and go see the ship if you can. How often can you see the
2: ship? You can see the ship every day. You can. It's open uh, 10 till till 4, I think, is when it's visiting hours. The last tour is at 4 o'clock. Free to visit the ship. You do have to go through security in the Navy Yard, so don't bring a knife or anything like that. Um, and it is manned by sailors, off, uh, I said, crewed by sailors from the United States Navy. It is free. The museum itself, as I said, open by donation every day from, I think, 9 until 6 every day. The ship is from 10 until 4, 10 until, 10 until 5. Every morning at 8 a.m., you can hear morning colors. They fire a gun. And then at sunset, they fire a gun, which is audible throughout Boston. I can hear it from my home in South Boston every morning and every evening.
1: That is... This has been a great, great two hours. Thank you. He's you're the by best. very quickly. You're really good. What's what's coming up for the for the USS Constitution? Any any well, be events planned?
2: They'll have a turnaround on July 4th. It had a turnaround for uh, Charlestown Day. The next turnaround is on July 4th. We'll have a number of other turnarounds this summer. And when it does turn around, if you're not fortunate enough to be on board, go to Castle Island in South Boston at about uh, between 11 and noon. And you can see Constitution fire a salute to the batteries at Castle Island.
1: What do they do? A lottery or something for who gets yeah, to go on to the show? To get aboard, yeah. It,
2: it's a lottery. Um, you know, so it's free again to get aboard and do this, but you do have to where enter they, the lottery. Where
1: they, where's the lottery? Where's the hat? Is it at the museum?
2: You go to the Constitution Museum website or the USS Constitution website and you'll be able to see what the lottery is. Okay. How to get aboard.
1: And in the final couple of minutes, can you. Bring us up to speed on Rev. 250 and what you have in the works.
2: Well, right now we have a couple of bills before the legislature to create a commission. And also this week, tomorrow, we're doing a muster out in Worcester for uh, historic groups out there who want to come hear more about it. So like 2.30 to 4.00. I think it's at the Worcester Museum, the American Antiquarian Society. And then on Thursday, 2.30 to 4.30 at Quincy's Old City Hall for folks in the Quincy Braintree area. So come and hear more about REV 250 or go to our website, uh, revolution250.org, to find out where these other musters are. We're also having one out in the Pioneer Valley out west because this is the revolution did happen throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and we want to be part of it.
1: What Did you do anything with Bunker Hill Day?
2: I did not, but they had great events both on uh, Sunday for the parade in Charlestown. Then yesterday they had a ceremony beginning at St. Francis de Sales Church. And then marching to Breeds Hill, St. Francis of Sales Church is on Bunker Hill. The monument is on Breeds Hill. But Charlestown Day or Bunker Hill Day was celebrated both on Sunday and on Monday.
1: If you could do me a favor and tell the people that put together the uh, the talk you did that I was able to attend, thank them so very much for a really great event. Of, and and even the, even the food, you know, there were little snacks at the end that were not just— Average snacks, they were pretty spectacular. Yeah, that, was good.
2: that was a it's a new venture, saltwater catering. That's a joint venture between Boston Harbor Cruises and Barbara Lynch.
1: Thank you, Bob Allison. It's a busy.
2: Thank you, Bradley.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.